0: Hello, this is Graham Plaster, CEO of The Intelligence Community, Inc. and TheIntelligenceCommunity.com. I'm here with Alexia, uh, the president of Young Professionals in Foreign Policy, and I'm excited to let you all know more about YPSP. It's a great organization. and doing great stuff. So let's kick off the podcast. Alexia, could you give us a little background on your um, bio and, and how you came to be in this role?
1: Sure. Thanks, Graham. It's great to be line with you. Um, so when I, when I look at my resume, I'm always a little daunted. It's every, like every time I go in and do my security clearance, the paperwork is so extensive because I have lived so many places now. Um, going over the last 10 years, I've been on three different continents. My jobs have taken me from foreign policy, working for State Department, to higher education, uh, to working in public-private partnerships, and now as the head of a, of a small nonprofit and so what I would tell people is that whatever your plan may be, it's good to have a plan, but life tends to take you in a variety of different directions. Um, if I have to look back and think about the most meaningful experiences, um, certainly one of the pivotal experiences I had was going to work on AFPAC issues at the State Department. I started there with a now-defunct office called SRAP, the Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan. And I came in 2011 in the wake of the bin Laden raid and was covering security assistance and essentially had to look at revising U.S. security assistance program funding um, for cooperation with Pakistan at one of the worst times for the relationship. And that was really a a deep dive into how the interagency process in the U.S. works um, or doesn't work as the case may be, some of the challenges we essentially had to produce paper for you know almost weekly principal committees and deputies committees of the National Security Council. So Um, I I definitely learned quickly and had long days. And then I shifted um, to something totally different, Um, you know, going from working on a a very challenging partner, Pakistan, um, moving to Tokyo and spending three years in Japan, first working for the embassy covering poll mill issues, and then shifting over to consulting and working on a public-private partnership. And that's really the last thread that I'll pick up, which is that, You know, after a – and I didn't really go into earlier in my career. I had worked in think tanks on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, But really up until that point in Japan in 2013, I had worked in more traditional settings in think tanks, um, doing some private sector internship work when I was in graduate school, then working for the State Department. And while it was really fascinating to work on big picture policy issues, it was frustrating that the rate of change was often so intangible and slow and so when I got to Japan, I ended up working for this group called the Tomonachi Initiative, which was a public-private partnership that was stood up by the U.S. Embassy in Tokyo and the U.S.-Japan Council, which is based here in D.C., in the wake of the Great East Japan earthquake, to really think about how we could very quickly and in a tangible way help the communities that have been most impacted um, by the tsunami and the nuclear disaster that took place in 2011. And essentially what I got to do was take the best parts of both worlds. I acted as a translator for my friends and former colleagues on the government side and also essentially – so basically I, I translated for them what local nonprofits and grassroots organizations were doing. And likewise I took what the local implementers of all these high-impact um, uh, programs that were taking place were doing and translated into language that would make sense for our partners who were looking from a political military perspective, from a, from a U.S. government perspective. And really, since that point in time, I haven't had any sort of conventional career. I've continued teaching and then took over the helm of young professionals in foreign policy. Um, so I, I don't know that I'd ever be able to go back um, to a traditional office setting. I think having seen the impact that um, smaller organizations can have, um, I, I think, uh, you know, it would be tough to go back to a setting where your your words are getting cleared by 30 to 50 people and uh, commas are getting changed to periods.
0: Well, it's interesting because you've had a real mashup of leadership opportunities, diplomatic, government, you know, nonprofit, and uh, been a liaison across all of those areas. So. You have a tremendous amount of, like, you know, expertise now, and I understand what you're saying that it'd be hard to go back. But I suspect, being where you are, the siren's lure will pull you back into large organizations where they need that kind of expertise and broad knowledge. So I'll be eager to to see where where things go from here. But tell us about Young Professionals in Foreign Policy. How old is the organization? Who started it? You know, when did you take over? And uh, what's it all about?
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, So I came on board and took over the helm of YPFP in December of last year, so I'm still relatively new in my tenure. Um, The organization has actually been around for quite a long time. It was started in 2004 really as a small discussion group of friends who are moved by the tragic events of September 11. and the mission of YPFP has remained consistent since then. We engage, build, and amplify next-generation voices to advance innovative solutions to global challenges. The difference is that fast-forwarding from 2004, where it was really a group of 20 friends who had come to D.C. to start careers after their undergrad experiences, now in 2018, we have a global community of over 20,000 emerging leaders in 80 different countries. So what makes us unique? We're nonpartisan. We focus on young professionals and students with age range of 21 to 35, we have a global presence. Um, since 2004, we've set up um, some large branches in places like Brussels, London, and New York, in addition, of course, to our, our, our main headquarters here in D.C., and then also a series of smaller hubs in Dubai, Puerto Rico, Rome, San Francisco, Tel Aviv, and Toronto to help expand the reach of our community. What's notable is that for the first 12 years of our existence, we were completely volunteer, managed, and led, so this tremendous Global infrastructure was stood up purely with volunteers. We typically, any given date and time, have about 150 global volunteers who dedicate, on average, over $1.3 million worth of volunteer hours. And we run um, usually 150 to 200 events a year. We have a fellows program. We have people who are publishing thought leadership pieces and a variety of different um, media outlets. We also have working groups so people can develop their expertise. You can either join if you're an expert in a particular area and you want to help others shape their understanding, or you can be someone who's totally new to the field who perhaps comes from a totally different sector, like the hospitality industry, or I met a YPSP member last week in New York who's an architect. And then lastly, we also have some community service programs. Our flagship program is the Refugee Assistance Program, and we typically support about 100 refugee families every year, predominantly in the D.C. community. So we do a wide variety of things. Um, I think the challenge coming in as a a new leader to an organization that is in a, a pivotal point in its history is that I really have to maximize the volunteer creativity and energy, but also harness it in a more concrete direction. We've done so many things over the years. We really are at a point where we're envisioning YPSP 2.0, and so we have to, to come up with a hybrid model, basically, where we have a couple of full-time paid staff who can really facilitate what our volunteers are doing and take on some of the, the bandwidth, um, some of the more boring things, frankly, you know, related to, to governance and, and operations. Um, And so in the process of developing a new strategy, we have a survey out uh, right now to try to help shape that to be data driven. And we're really refining our our approach and thinking about scaling both within the U.S. um, and globally. So uh, I'm not sure how <laughs> how I have the time. The days just wins by. We have two full-time people right now um, doing all of this, engaging a board of 14 members and this infrastructure of 150 global volunteers. So uh, in some ways, December, I, I can't believe that it's May. Because, um, the days just blend together given all the exciting work that we have.
0: Oh, that's awesome. That's a great segue to the next question, which is what is one project you're working on now that's exciting that you want to share with people?
1: Sure. So um, one of the programs that's most exciting for me is our fellowship program. This program started four years ago, initially with six fellows. And this year we have 24 fellows. We received almost 400 applications. Um, These are unpaid fellowships. A majority of these individuals have never published before. And they commit to working with us for eight months. Um, So we just onboarded them. Uh, Several of them have just written their first pieces, actually, in this last week. And essentially what we're trying to do is really help these individuals hone their professional skills, help catalyze their careers, help them break that initial barrier of getting published. So they work hand-in-hand with our editors. We help them develop their voice. We pitch their pieces to a wide variety of media outlets. And we also do a lot of professional development training for them on everything from writing an effective op-ed to moderating events reporting on foreign policy, doing speech writing, and managing online media platforms. Um, So essentially, it's really an incubator for folks who are at a pivotal point early in their careers, um, and we work hand-in-hand with them to make sure that they're taking their careers to the next step.
0: Yeah, I love that. It's great. It's uh, (laughs) really incubating thought leaders and incubating subject matter experts is, uh, is a terrific mission, and you're doing it really well. What are some of the partnerships that you have in place to get your interns published?
1: Sure. So we have our own online journal called Charged Affairs, and we also have a, um, a blog called Emerging Voices. And then we work with a variety of publications. Um, some of our, our early partners that have continued throughout the, the history of the fellowship are Huffington Post, Diplomatic Courier, and The National Interest. But so we're always looking to expand. Um, and reach different audiences. A new focus is also uh, to really focus on more local publications, so looking at where fellows grew up, their hometowns, where they went to school, to try to bring foreign policy back to those communities, many of which are, are less familiar with foreign policy and national security issues. And I think it's also a great exercise for our fellows to make sure that they're, you know, getting out of uh, to what some degree have become sort of elite uh, bubbles and making sure that when they talk about even complex foreign policy issues, they're doing so in an intelligible way that makes sense um, to an average person.
0: Yeah, that's, and, and also to an operator, right, because there's a divide between academics or think tanks and those who do, which has given rise to the think-do tanks, or people that want to produce thought leadership but also want to be engaged with um, the activity in the field. And YPAP is great because everyone's so young that they're really uh, the people, they're the worker bees in foreign policy that do get stuff done. And one of the things I've been impressed with about your network is that um, these are young people that are highly connected for their age and for uh, the amount of experience they have. They they still have a lot of reach. Um, And the fact that you're getting people published in uh, such notable publications is really, uh, it speaks to, uh, how how So uh, next question well, is that.
1: we're we're always trying to improve and, and do even better, certainly.
0: Yeah what um, tell me about some resources you like to share with people when people ask you for recommended reading or mobile apps or um, podcasts you listen to or uh, you know how do you stay up to date with foreign policy what how do you stay up to speed with technology? Or what are some tips?
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, You know, obviously I have to make a pitch as the president for our own uh, online journal, Charged Affairs, which I think is great. Um, Other folks that I listen to, you know, I think uh, really what I've started doing is trying to get to newer voices in the the foreign policy space. Um, So rather than than following some of the more traditional uh, think tanks, really focusing on individual people with up-and-coming voices in the field. So, uh, you know, one person who I follow is uh, Allie Wine, who's over at RAND. I think he writes really thoughtful pieces. Uh, my own chief of staff, Bumi Akinisotu, started a great podcast called What in the World. And she interviews people in foreign policy, um, again, with, with really the main goal of breaking it down um, for folks, making it intelligible, um, getting us out of the acronym wonk speak. Um, so that's been great.
0: Yeah, I like that. Um, another
1: yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's been one of my favorites. Um, another one, uh, someone called uh, Lacey Healy um, over at uh, Instinct Media has started something called Things That Go Boom, <laughs> um, which is which is a lot of fun. Uh, so really, I guess, embracing sort of the, the podcast space. Um, I think, you know, maybe it's, a, it's partly due to the fact that I feel like I read so much, my eyes are falling out of my head, I need something different to do, especially on my commute. Um, but I think, you know, podcasts are – to some degree, a great level setter, um, and, you know, you can you can do a lot more. I think it also lends itself, again, towards getting away from the jargon that makes foreign policy and national security unintelligible. When you're actually talking in person, uh, you tend to do that in a more normal way than when you're writing an op-ed, um, you know, or a longer policy brief or a longer article. Um, the only other one I'll mention is a group called um, – the Atlantic uh, Community. Um, it's a great uh, open-source think tank um, that was started in Berlin, also by a bunch of volunteers who um, who do this in their in their spare time, um, and they have done some great work. Essentially, you know, they're really trying to open up the conversation about transatlantic relations to a very grassroots audience, um, and so again, they're bringing in new, fresh, um, more underrepresented diverse voices into foreign policy and national security conversations. And so a lot of the content that they highlight um, is just different. It's new, it's innovative, it's fresher. Um, We certainly need some of those established voices of folks who are at places like CSIS and the Atlantic Council, but I think it's really important to also inject new perspectives. Hence why I think some of the newer media-like podcasts are able to do that.
0: Yeah, I I love podcasts, especially around urban areas where there is a large commuter culture, you know, either on public transportation or driving. Um, I've listened to thousands of hours of podcasts, and I think one of the advantages is, um, you know, our our eyes are looking at screens all day long, or if you have the appetite for uh, a whole day of screens plus reading books at a certain point in time, you just want to break away from screens. And then on top of that, you can only multitask so much when you're looking at a screen, whereas if you put something on that's audio only, uh, you can walk on a treadmill, you can drive a car. Um, so there's a lot of uh, versatility that comes in with podcasts, I think, uh, that we don't have with some of the other media. So in, And around D.C., if you can create a podcast that has a good amount of information in, a, uh, in the right amount of time, then people can digest it right on the way to work, which is that person. But.
1: Absolutely. The one, the one exception, I'll say, though, the one book that I have, uh, read recently, but um, I've actually taken the time to do so, and I encourage others to as well, uh, it's called Radical Inclusion. It's uh, co-authored okay. by Ori Brothman and former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, General Martin Dempsey, and I think that their message is, is really unique and interesting. Uh, you know, essentially, they, they talk about how the fear of losing control in this, a high, you know, fast-paced, complex environment that we work in pushes us toward inclusion uh, when actually yeah. if you are more inclusive, you bring more fresh perspectives um, into decision-making processes. So um, that is the one book, especially, you know, given my crazy day job at YPSP and the fact that I have a toddler, I actually read this one cover to cover. <laughs> so that said something.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's a great recommendation. So I'll make sure that we link to it. Okay, last question, call to action. So let's say we have a number of different types of people that get to hear the podcast, Um, some young enough that might be able to join YPFP, some older. uh, Maybe they want to get involved as a sponsor or recruit some talent out of YPFP. What are some things that you would like people to do?
1: Absolutely. Um, so one, uh, you know, we have a survey um, out right now that I would love for people to, um, to fill out. It's really helping us chart our new strategic direction. So it's available on all of our social media channels. It takes five minutes. It would be great for us um, to have that input as we move forward. Um, that's one piece. The other piece is, you know, please join and become a member. We have a really diverse group. We're spread evenly across government, civil society, and private sectors. And it's really a fascinating chance to engage with other people Uh, if you're in that age demographic. As I mentioned, our age range is really 21 to 35. Um, And we are, you know, we're organic. We've been built up by volunteers, and there's still quite a bit of creative capacity to do interesting projects. Um, So if you join, you can help shape our future uh, and do things that you think are interesting, that you think are impactful and important for this next generation of professionals who are focused on global challenges, regardless of what your, your title is in your day job. And then the last piece that I would add, if you're willing to sponsor us, certainly as a nonprofit, we're always looking for folks who will serve as sponsors. Um, one of the primary areas we're looking to fund right now is our thought leadership component, those fellows that we talked about, um, looking for more financial support so we can do really extensive programs for them um, so that ideally we can expand the fellow class beyond 24 uh, fellows next year. And, um, and really just learn about the organization. I encourage folks to, to visit our website. We have a lot of great resources there. Um, the, most of them are free for members. If you're a student, membership is $20 for a year, so, you know, the cost of dinner. Uh, and if you are a young professional out of school, then the cost is $60 a year. So really manageable. We're looking to be that Big Ten organization, that first, uh, you know, really inclusive place where people can accelerate their careers, meet other people who are fascinated and, and passionate about foreign policy challenges, and then help with your input to to really build people's careers and enable them to take the next step professionally.
0: Okay. Thanks so much, Alexia, for the time and for the um, <clears throat> talking about the program. And we'll put some Absolutely links Graham, in the show thanks to, for having me. I appreciate sure it. Join. Yeah, absolutely. Um any any final thoughts before we sign off?
1: No, just thanks for the opportunity. It was great chatting with you.
0: Oh, you too.